Welcome to our final class in the bunker uh, for the fabulous 2020. Uh, again, as, as I mentioned last time, uh, what we're going to do after this class uh, is that we're going to take a little break until uh, mid-January for the, the holidays. Uh, have been doing this class every week uh, since January and have been grateful to be able to roll through uh, all of the weirdness that has been 2020 in the pandemic and be able to get through all of that and even through the summer uh, when, when church wasn't really meeting. And what we're finding now is that a lot of wards are adding second hours uh, and so we're kind of getting back a little bit. So the plan at this point, I think, uh, and it's subject to change, is that uh, we will take a break until the middle of January. And at which point we'll probably do this class a little bit later, probably more in the four to five o'clock range. Um, for, those, for those of you that tend to want to wanna watch live uh, at, when it first comes out, um, but one of the things that I notice is that an awful lot of people end up watching during the week uh, at different times, and that's one of the beauties of being able to record this is that it, you can watch it when you're ready to sit down and watch it. But that means that it isn't as necessary that we do it on a, uh, early on Sunday afternoon, especially where we think it's going to interfere uh, with churches that are coming back. So probably about four or five when we get to uh, January, and we'll go from there. Uh, but that said, then um, I want to I want to start today with as as members of the church. There is a dialogue that we are used to uh, hearing, and it helps frame a little bit for us uh, what happens. We we from the uh, from the the Garden of Eden drama. Uh, which is, again, when we look at those things, it's hard to know how much is symbolism, how much is real, what is presented to us. So all we can do is interact with uh, the texts that we have, the dramas that we have, uh, especially in the temple, put that together and make assumptions off of that, but not hold ourselves too much to the very literalness of everything. Uh, otherwise, we're going to get caught up in wandering and wondering the, the wrong things. That said... There's a dialogue between uh, Lucifer and Eve in in kind of the 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 seduction before the fall, if you will, the the convincing her to be able to partake of the fruit, and and it, it sounds a little bit like you need to eat this fruit uh, so that uh, your eyes can be open and you can end up being like Father. And remember, she's looking at this, and she said, and she's not sure. And he says, "Because, because this is how our heavenly parents gained their knowledge. They they partook of the fruit, and because of that, they know the difference between right and wrong, good and evil, sickness and health, sweet and bitterness. They understand both of those, and so you have to do this. And and so the the choice really for her is having to say if she's if that's really true then she has to make a choice that will cause her to leave paradise leave this beautiful garden where she lives to be able to gain the knowledge that uh, she wanted to gain that was part of the plan of salvation to gain this critical knowledge but she's going to have to leave paradise to do it well that's 
that's a pretty hard choice. But ultimately what happens is that she needs to do it so that she can taste the bitter of the fall so that she can treasure the sweet of, of the gospel. And, but again, to do that, she has to leave. And then we get this, this mournfulness as she looks around at all of this and says, is there no other way? And Lucifer's response is supposed to be then, there is no other way. Probably very similar to maybe what the Savior felt in Gethsemane when he said, if there's any other way to remove this cup from me, and somehow inside of him he must have heard, or even from the angel, there is no other way. It has to be done. Now, I realize that uh, Satan has always been the great imitator. Nothing original about this guy. He always takes what is original and then twists it to his end. And it suddenly occurred to me that Lucifer in the garden may have been parroting something that he heard previously and parroting something that Eve either remembered or was somehow locked inside of her and it would have resonated. And it should resonate with us, I believe. As we were in the presence of our heavenly parents in the pre-mortal life, and we wanted to gain the knowledge and understanding and ultimately the body that our heavenly parents did. We too, maybe as we looked at the plan, came to realize that we were going to have to leave paradise, leave the beauty of where we were, uh, to so that we could come down through the fall and into mortality and taste the bitter so that we would learn to treasure the sweet. But we may have looked mournfully around us and said, I, I want to gain this knowledge. I want to gain the experience. I want to become like you, father, mother, want to become like you. And, and did we, like Eve, ask, is there no other way to do it without having to leave this paradise? And I believe that the first words may have come from our heavenly parents or from Jesus himself saying to us, there is no other way. This is the way it has to be done. You have, you have to partake of the fruit of mortality so that you can come to know what the gods know. And if that's true, then, then indeed Lucifer in the garden is simply parroting what he heard anciently before this life and that Eve would have heard that before. I have to leave paradise. I have to come to know the bitter and the sweet. And there's no other way to do that. So, I believe that that's why that's, that's that moment where we begin to roll into mortality and we come into this earth life 
having forgotten those conversations, but it should resonate when we read them. So here we are, and we've accepted the gospel. We're trying to live the gospel. Um, but one of those things that, that uh, ha happens to us is that there was no way to prepare us for the conundrums and the contradictions that would certainly come as we tasted the bitter uh, and so that we would ultimately learn to treasure the most beautiful and, and the sweet. And I, and I hear that from time to time from people. So th that's why it is when we worry about our our sins and are we clean enough and is we, we do we have enough earth stains and is that going to get in the way let's remind ourselves a little bit of, of what we were talking about last week and that is we talked about the fact that we are we are anxious to be able to go through mortality and be able to return to live with heavenly parents in that realm once again but in order to do that, we know that that's inextricably linked to our forgiveness of sins because we keep blowing it. We keep doing things that we shouldn't do. And as we talked about last time, we came to understand that this forgiveness of sins is an event. It's a pardon. When we come to the Lord with a broken heart and a contrite spirit and a desire to move forward, that he quickly and freely forgives that that repentance is simply about turning around and starting to walk another direction and that for so many people they have repented quickly and been forgiven quickly go your way and sin no more uh, and the Lord says as you sin no more I will remember no more you have been pardoned forgiveness of sins we decided was a pardon and how often does that happen in our life maybe even for the same sin well that's 70 times 7 that's that's constantly we are always repenting and being forgiven and what we were asking last time if you recall was uh, well wait a minute if I if I re repeat the sin does that mean I didn't really repent and, and we struggle with that, and we, and we found that that's, that's actually not true, and we're going to describe that in a sec. But part of what happens then is with this forgiveness of sins, then what happens is, is that then we're going to go, and, we, and for those that are a little bit older, uh, we're going to step into the waters of baptism. And we're told that the purpose of baptism is for, it's baptism for the remission of sins. And sometimes we have uh, falsely and maybe naively or kind of simply suggested that that meant that we, that we uh, carried those sins to the waters of baptism. We went into the waters of baptism. We came out completely clean because now our sins have been forgiven. And, and coming to understand this kind of a, a more nuanced level of how this work recognizes our forgiveness can come before baptism when, as we repent. Baptism is for resulting in the remission of sins. And so, so what exactly are we talking about there? Well, as, as, we, as we described this last time, remember that we talked about the remission of sins 
being, as opposed to a, an immediate pardon here, the remission of sins would probably be more accurately described as the remissions of habits, the remissions of, um, of uh, tendencies that, that we do, the remission of addictions, the, remi- the remission of our mortality and our natural manness to, compl- to continue to do things over and over. So the remission of sins then becomes, as we talked about, it really is the transformation of us. It's the remission of sins so that, the remission of habits so that we can be on a path, and baptism certainly puts us on that path, to be ultimately transformed by the, the power and enabling power of the atonement that Elder Bednar has talked so eloquently about. And enables us to make covenants and promises with the Lord that allows us to more freely have access to the transformational power that the Lord knows will be this lifetime process of the remittance of our mortality, the remittance of our natural desires, and and changing us to be people like Him and people like our parents. Now, in that then, uh, so, we're, so we're looking at this, this is an event, this is a process, this is the one that takes time, and so in order to help us transform and change, we are given commandments, and those commandments, remember, are not so that we can tick a box or so that we can pass a final test or to be condemned based on what we did. Those commandments are given by loving parents so that we could learn how to love and be like them. That that it's in the obedience that we are transformed ultimately in our natures. Now often then, when we look at that, we are then placed in church communities that enable us to utilize that love and to serve one another. <laughs> and, as, and as we all know, ward situations, we're going to grab everybody in a geographical place and put them together. And that can be wonderfully harmonious and angels sing every time we walk into the chapel. Or it can be a battleground of different beliefs and different ideas and conflicting personalities and and uneven leadership styles. There is so much in a ward community that requires and draws on every aspect of our love and our service and our friendship and our forgiveness, as we're going to talk about, that, that a ward group enables us to serve, but it also enables us to overcome uh, a lot of our humanness and, and to polish off the roughness while we're in the process, this lifetime remission of sinness uh, that we're going through. So, with that as an idea then, uh, I, I, I do hear from time to time, as you watch, you watch members struggle with uh, the the ward community in which they live, and and the set of commandments and their life 
superimposed to other people that they might see, and their life as uh, uh, running alongside those in other faiths and those without faith. And we see the contrast. And, and so we start to ask questions like, how come our church is so complicated and other churches get to be so simple? We're worried about all of the what it would take to keep the commandments and keep your temple recommend and, and all, all of those kind of things. Uh, and I have been surrounded by wonderful Christians who simply look at me and say, Kevin, it's easy. Just trust Jesus. I prayed to Jesus and it happened. Praise Jesus. And it just and I have and I have to admit that I have some holy envy for those that have this wonderful, straightforward, uncomplicated, just trust Jesus focus on their lives. And they are wonderful people led by by the Spirit to trust Jesus and live the best lives that they know how to live. What a, what a sweet way to conduct their life and what a great example they are to me. Um, and so when we run up against that, we have, a, we have a tendency to ask questions like, I just can't believe in a God that would keep me out of heaven just because I drank a cup of coffee. I'm, I'm not sure that, you know, that just doesn't make any sense. Everybody else seems to be doing fine. They get to, they get to go to church, trust Jesus, and then, you know, go to Chili's after, after church service, <laughs> you know. Uh, they get to do all of those things and still be good Christians. And we're caught up in uh, making sure you didn't drink tea or coffee or, you know, or wear, wear clothes that, that uh, might show your garments. And there's, there's all of these things that's like, well, wait a minute, this is a complicated thing and I want it to be more simple. And how come everybody else gets to have it easier? And I, I think it, somewhere in that process, um, we've had this old response that just uh, doesn't always sit really well with, your, with a teenager trying to figure out why their friends are having more fun than they are. And why their, their friends can all meet at Starbucks and have a cup of coffee and they're not allowed to. They're, they're going to be weird if they do. And we were always quick, and I certainly heard it all the time I was growing up. We were always pretty quick to be told when we ask a question like this, that the answer was always, well, it's not your job to question, it's just your job to obey. Just obey. It's about obedience. I just want your obedience. There are mysteries, my son. Mysteries. And don't worry about which way the pearly gates swing. Just obey. And don't ask. Don't analyze. Don't ask questions. Just obey. And as we know, by and large, boy, did that, did that approach stop working as soon as the internet cranked up. And, and you could read a lot of responses from a lot of people. And suddenly, uh, as the brethren have said over and over and over, we are, we're way past the point of just saying, just obey. People want to ask questions and they want to get answers. 
And because of that, we start to see that we, for years and decades, we lived in, in a church setting by well-meaning leaders who really focused on obedience. And it was about obedience. And so as, a, as another one has, has said recently, I was a little worried about, you know, I am a child of God and teach me all that I must do before it grows too late. Uh, oh my gosh, I might, you know, I missed the deadline. And I'm going to probably be in a lesser kingdom because it grew too late and I was still sinning. And... And I think as, as revelation is coming and we understand better than we did, that, that in, in truth, covenants and commandments were given to teach us how to love, not so that we can be graded on a curve. We receive these things so that we would become like the Christ. And so what that really means, uh, to say it more starkly, is that God does not need our obedience. It isn't in his nature to need us to obey him. He needs our love. And he, he's working for our joy that comes only through becoming like him. He loves us and desires for us to obey. And the more that we love him, the easier it is for us to obey. And one of the reasons why we obey is so that we learn to love him and love our fellow men. N not, not to get the eternal A so we can go to the celestial kingdom. It really is about love. And, and, and obeying, keeping commandments and, and going through ordinances and covenants of the gospel because we're striving to become like him. That's the place we're trying to get to. So there is, So I believe that one of the great um, challenges that comes to us in mortality is when we are then wounded. When we're trying to understand the bitter and the sweet that in the process of mortality and we're trying somehow to do the best we can we get wounded we grieve. We gain things, we learn things, but then we lose things and we lose people and we lose a lot of things. And then people make choices, not good choices, or perhaps foolish choices, or unintended choices, or addictive choices, or self-centered choices. And they act on those. And we can say, well, that's their life. But what happens when their actions affect us? What happens when their choices and the things that they're doing will have a long-term uh, deleterious effect on us and cause us to have to change our lives so that uh, we have, in a sense, we're not just feeling pain through our choices, we're feeling unfair pain. We didn't choose this. We didn't want this. Uh, but their choices is an unfairness to us. And, we're, and we have to deal with and change and be affected by because of their poor decision making. And that's not fair. 
that's not right. I shouldn't have to go through that. It shouldn't work that way. And then it does. Of all the bitterness that we would have to in, inherit and endure in mortality, one of the hardest, I believe, is unfair pain and undeserved trauma and, and the effect that it has on, on our life. And it's not our fault. One of the things that we have found, for instance, in working with uh, longitudinally with alcohol, alcoholics, is that if somebody is an alcoholic, we can track for four generations the effect that their addiction, even if the next three generations never touch alcohol, that there will be a four generational effect that goes back to that alcoholic in terms of the alcoholic and children of alcoholics where they don't talk, don't trust, don't feel and those that are now the indulged kids grandkids of the alcoholic you know you can just watch these generations roll and it wasn't their fault and it wasn't their choice but their lives have been affected through somebody else's unfairness and their un, and their unfair and what they have done okay so our lives are changed through through somebody else's decision making what do we do with that well now let's let's superimposed what we've been talking about. We talked about the Lord constantly forgiving us of our sins and that that can be an event and it can happen quickly. It's a, it's a pardon. But we are then, if we are going to become like the Christ then one of those additional hardness things and bitterness things that comes with having to deal with an unfairness is not only to be affected by that, but to ultimately forgive that. That is a long haul when we have been badly hurt. And so because of that, we may end up having a broken heart and we want to hurt no more. And, and, and when we are forgiving, forgiveness, remember, is the last stage of grieving. So we must grieve so that we can forgive. And we must forgive so that we can be at peace. So we're going to go from grieving to forgiving so that finally we can be at peace. Now, one thing to get on with our life it's another thing to have to forgive that unfairness but we want it because we finally ultimately want to be at peace do we not and how often do we have to do that in this mortality it'll be 70 times 7 it'll be constantly think about as parents, one of the things that we've come to understand our heavenly parents is that if we have been parents ourselves, we have to forgive all the time. We have to be, 
we have to be angry at these creatures of what they're doing, these kids, and be upset by what they've done and love them and forgive them anyway. And we have to do it over and over and over and over. But we do that so that we're not always walking around angry and hurt. Now, if we're going to forgive an unfairness where somebody has hurt us, let's go back to the idea that... that, uh, Forgiveness and remission of sins are two steps in a process. So, yes, you were hurt. Yes, you're going to have to forgive and forgive quickly and early and often so that you can be at peace. But the remission of that hurt means that current events in your life can trigger old pain. Call it a flashback or whatever, but we can have events in our life that trigger older pain in us. And suddenly these old hurts come back. Not because we didn't forgive in the first place, but because we were reminded of it in the in the present. And that so that pain and that anger can move in and out of remission if you will. doesn't mean that you haven't forgiven. And it doesn't mean that you don't then at times have long periods of peace. It just means that that process, like forgiveness of sins and remission of sins for us, also works for other people. It's going to be the forgiving of their sins and the remission of their unfairnesses constantly. And we have to do it over and over and over. And I think that, again, I think that's one of the great challenges that comes to us uh, in mortality. Now, if that's the case, and we have to watch and learn and be trained about how to do it, wouldn't it be nice to find that in the scriptures and find people that actually have to do that? Well, as it turns out, the scriptures are full of this process absolutely full of it and nowhere is it more evident than the book of Genesis oh my goodness when we start getting into the book of Genesis uh, as we talk about for instance uh, Sarai and Hagar to read the to read the book of Genesis uh, I was laughing about it the other day thinking that it's a little bit like watching the, the movie Les Miserables or reading the book the miserables. The whole idea of uh, Les Miserables was the fact that everybody in this process of uh, from from Jean Valjean to Javert to uh, all of the they they were all miserable in their own way, and they all had their miserableness that they had to fight. And it was everything was unfair to them at one time or another, all the way down, all the way down the line. Everything was was caused misery, right? And they had to, and you watch how each one of them come to deal with that misery, undeserved misery that comes into their life. Okay, well, 
Genesis is like that. Genesis should be renamed Les Miserables because they, they are unfairly having to go through things they didn't ask for. Um, and man, to be a woman in Genesis really stunk. <laughs> Can we just say that? It was a hard row to hoe. Um, now, for, and, and so let, let's use one of the, Sarai and, and Hagar. And because Sarai, ultimately, uh, Sarai is going to come onto the scene as this beautiful bride of Abraham, but she has a close call in Egypt. Uh, and then she's, here's this bride and everything. And, and ultimately for her, now Sarai, Abram's wife, bore him no children. With all the, her faithfulness and wonderfulness and everything, she can't have kids. Like Rachel can't have kids. Like Hannah can't have kids. Like Elizabeth can't have kids. It's like, if you are a righteous woman, your chance of having kids just drop dramatically because you're going to have to really struggle to try and have kids. Uh, and, and, and to do it in a culture and a time when that was the sign of your uh, righteousness. Righteous women had, good women had kids. Bad women didn't have kids. It was God's curse upon you. And we have this string of women with fertility problems and have to endure all of that. Uh, and then we get to, of course, then we get to uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus. She has, she's uh, another fertility problem, just on the opposite. But it's still, it's an unfairness, right? Okay, so Sarah, Sarai, Abram's wife, bore him no children. Now she's really old. But she had an Egyptian slave girl. And we can talk about the unfairness of slavery. That as they come back from Egypt, there's probably a slave girl that she's given to be uh, her maid. Let's call it for what it is. No, she's a slave girl. And whose name is Hagar. And, and Sarai says to Abram, I'm not having any kids. You see that the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Now, we're, we're reading this almost like a, you get a text and you can't get the emotional context behind it until you get the emoji that tells you. It's hard to know whether this, you see that the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Is that her going, Dear Abram, as you can see, the Lord has prevented me from having children. I have come up with a blessed solution to our problem. Or is there a hint of anger and sarcasm here and going, as you can see, the Lord, for some unknown reason, has prevented me from bearing children. Because her solution, we don't know if it's, I have come up with an inspirational plan. Or, fine, I can't have kids, let's do it another way. Go into my slave girl and it may be that I shall obtain children by her. You get a sense that, that Sarai is kind of sensitive on this, on this topic. She's not happy about it. 
is, is certainly some of the underlying tone that I, I guess I read into this, and I may be completely wrong. But I can hear this frustration element, and it may even have been an impulsive choice on Sarai's part. We just don't know. But her reaction and her sensitivity to the way that Sarai and then to Ishmael, the way that they handled this, suggests that Sarai was just struggling either by anger or pain. Uh, and it's certainly true. And, and, and part of why you get this too is that if we go back and we read the, the uh, pioneer journals of the, the women in the early days of the church that lived plural marriage, and you read their journals... They are very rare, rarely saying, this was a blessed state for us, as much as they're saying, plural marriage was an Abrahamic test. It was hard for us to send our husband off on a mission and he comes back with a couple extra wives. This was an Abrahamic test and it was hard. And we're willing to bear all of this uh, out of a sense of obedience and and covenant and you almost get that sense with Sarai you know so go into my slave girl that it may be that I shall obtain children by her uh, and Abram listened to the voice of Sarai so Sarai Abram's wife took Hagar the Egyptian her slave girl gave her to Abram as a wife she conceived and when Hagar saw that she had conceived she looked with contempt upon Sarai you don't get a sense that anybody asked Hagar's permission on this. I, I, there's probably some sense of relief that she would get to have kids and bear kids. That would say that God was smiling on her. But to do it this way and have to be looked over by uh, Sarai, uh, nobody's asking her permission. And that's part of what happens in slavery and part of why slavery is so repulsive. Now, did she come back and look with a little contempt on Sarai? May have. Easily could have done that. Sarai could have been reading into her actions. We don't know. But ultimately what we do know is Sarai dealt harshly with her and she ran away from her. So this is not something that Hagar asked for. Here comes this unfairness. She is I, probably happy to be having a child. Um, but then nobody asked her. She does it. And then uh, now unfairly she's going to be kicked out. And she's going to be dealt with harshly. Now, the angel of the Lord found... Hagar. So in the midst of all of this, there's got to be some relief in saying, God is aware of me. He sent an angel. And she's not even going to categorize it as an angel. She's going to call it God. The angel of the Lord found her and he said, Hagar, slave girl of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I am running away from my mistress Sarai. And then this, the angel of the Lord said to her, keep on running, that wasn't fair. <laughs> no. Return to your mistress and submit to her. 
submit to this un- unfairness. That's that is can be the way that it works. I've found out that I've been diagnosed with cancer. I would like to run away from it. You need to submit and go through this. This cup will not pass from you. We never know what trials unfairly we're going to then be called upon to have to say there's not, a, there's not a great answer why it is to return to Abram other than maybe to help take care of Ishmael. But return and submit. Hagar's response to, to her everlasting credit. She named the Lord who spoke to her, You are Elroy, the God who sees, the God who sees me. Even while I'm going to have to go through this trial, I'm going to know that the eye of God is upon me. For she said, in amazement, have I really seen God and remained alive after seeing him? That's amazing. Wherefore the well where she was at was called Berlorei Roy, the well of the God who sees me. That's, that's quite a testament. I'm going to have to go back and submit, but I'm going to celebrate the fact that I believe that I've seen God, or at very least seen His emissary. So, I'm kind of pulling all of this together. Uh, let, let, me, let me finish uh, with with uh, C.S. Lewis and 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 those who who know me know that you know whenever you're trying to kind of pull something idea wise together, C.S. Lewis is a pretty good source to go to to say the stuff better than you might have said it yourself. He was really good at that. So so here's here's Elder C.S. Lewis's take. Uh, yeah, I kind of see him as elder sometimes. You know, I think he accepted the gospel after. Um, Here's his take on this. And remember, he's coming as he was raised in the Church of England. He became an agnostic. Then he came back to being a theist. I'm going to sort of believe in God. And then he's going to be dragged back into Christianity and become its greatest uh, enunciator of its truths. Here's his response. I am only telling you what Christianity is. I did not invent it. And there, right in the middle of it, I find, forgive us of our sins as we forgive those that sin against us. There is no slightest suggestions that we are offered forgiveness on any other terms. Not to say that it's not unfair, but you have to forgive. It is made perfectly clear that if we do not forgive, we shall not be forgiven. There are no two ways about it. There is no other way. What are we to do? Brothers and sisters, my suggestion as we roll into the holiday season 
there is no other way than to forgive the unfairnesses against us. Our forgiveness rests on our ability to forgive. In our forgiveness, we will need over and over the remission of our sins and our nature. Our remission of others' sins will require that we live and relive sometimes those unfairnesses and then we forgive as, as they are changing their nature and it is changing our nature. I bear you my testimony that the God of heaven is far more merciful and forgiving than we, than we give him credit. That he knows the things that we need but by so doing he wants us to have the peace that he has that means we're going to need to forgive the way that he forgives. I pray that we can make these most essential changes in our life and gain a greater measure of peace. And I leave that with you in Jesus' name. Amen.